This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that shape our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and with me today is Nicole Martin. Our co-host, Russell Moore, is out traveling this week. Today, we'll be joined by Matt Martins, a writer and an attorney, to talk about the indictment of former President Donald Trump. We'll also talk about the events this week at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting and what we learned there about the ongoing debate over how to respond to sexual abuse and the role of women in ministry. We'll wrap up by talking about Juneteenth and the death of novelist Cormac McCarthy. So stay with us. So this last Thursday, not long actually after we recorded last week's bulletin, former President Donald Trump was indicted on 37 federal charges related to his handling of classified documents after his term in office. This indictment alleges that Trump, you know, among other things, willfully retained classified information, refused to hand them over when officials requested them, concealed the documents after they were subpoenaed. His aide, Walt Nauda, I think I'm saying that right, was also indicted on six related charges. Joining us to talk about this is Matthew Martins. Matthew is a lawyer with almost three decades of experience. He served as a federal prosecutor, a criminal defense attorney. He also at one point clerked for Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist. And he's the author of a forthcoming book from Crossway on criminal justice reform. This is coming out this November. Matt, welcome to the Bulletin. So let's start at the beginning of this to just talk about what's in this indictment. Why does this matter? Why does Jack Smith, the special counsel, what is he arguing in terms of why this is worth pressing charges? Yeah, so the charges fall really into two buckets. As you noted, there's 37 charges against the former president. The first 31 are under what's called the Espionage Act, which alleges essentially that the president, the former president, had unauthorized possession of and willfully retained national defense information consisting of various top secret documents, which are probably at this point emblazoned in everybody's memory from the photo of them laid out on the floor. And then the remaining six charges against the former president relate to obstruction of the government's investigation into whether or not he had those documents. So there was a grand jury subpoena. And in response to that subpoena, the allegation is that various false statements were made about whether everything was produced. And this is sort of the story about the boxes moving around and the effort to hide the documents and and mislead the grand jury and mislead the prosecutor. So the first 31 charges are about the possession of the documents. The remaining six charges are about obstruction or false statements in the investigation of the retention of the documents. Yeah. And it's when you read the indictment, one of the things you see, these are documents that were created by the CIA, the NSA, the Pentagon. They include information about our nuclear capabilities, our vulnerabilities, as well as that of our allies, our war plans for retaliation should we attack. I mean, it really boggles the mind a bit when you read the charges, when you see the photos. You know, everybody's probably seen not just the photo of the Mar-a-Lago bathroom, but like now the million memes for that photo. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant being stored in that bathroom was maybe the, (laughs) the funniest one that I saw. One of the more significant pieces of evidence in it is there's, they alleged to have a tape of Trump 
essentially bragging about being in possession of these things and admitting in this conversation that he hadn't declassified them and he he more or less shouldn't have the position. I guess I wonder how, when things seem stacked up the way they are, what's the case going to be for Trump's lawyers and his attorneys? What, what's his defense going to look like, as you imagine it, if you were his criminal defense attorney? Yeah, so it's interesting. I've actually tried to spend some time reading and understanding various of the arguments that have been put forward by people who are defending the president to understand what the legal argument, at least in particular, is. Uh, you know, I don't know what factual defenses they'll make yet, but I wanted to understand what the legal argument was. So as I mentioned, the first 31 charges are brought under the Espionage Act. And the Espionage Act requires that someone who has unauthorized possession, and that's the key language, willfully either disclosed or retained those documents. So those two pieces are going to be very important. Willfully and having unauthorized possession. So you've probably heard people talking about the Clinton Sox case, right? This has now become one of the most famous cases in America, the Clinton Sox case, as the former president called it. This is a case involving President Clinton and a historian he hired to help him prepare an oral history of his time as president. And there were 79 audio tapes of either interviews with the former president or meetings that President Clinton was having maintained by this historian. And then President, former President Clinton had the tapes apparently in a sock drawer in his house, these 79 tapes. And a group brought a lawsuit seeking to recover those tapes for the National Archives. They were arguing that they were presidential records and that they should be part of the National Archives. And interestingly, the court said that the question of whether documents are presidential records and thus must be in the possession of the National Archives or personal records, which the, a former president can keep, is a decision that belongs to the president, not to the archivist. Mm. And so I think what they're going to be arguing here is that back to that clause, having unauthorized possession, they're going to argue that the president had authorized possession because it is his decision whether or not records or presidential records or personal records. Now, I think that strikes a lot of people as bizarre that documents that have national security classification markers on them could even conceivably be personal records. I actually looked mm -hmm. up what the definition of personal records are under the Presidential Records Act. It, it means documentary materials of a purely private or non-public character which do not relate to or have an effect on the carrying out of the president's duties. There's no conceivable argument that classified <laughs> documents from the CIA are personal records. But the defense I think they're going to make is that's the president's decision to make, not the archivists or not Jack Smith's. And so if those documents were personal records as determined by President Trump while he was still in office as he was leaving, then he doesn't meet the element of having unauthorized access. I think that's the argument they're going to make. I think it strikes people, again, as implausible that documents of this sensitivity could just be designated with no ability to challenge that. But that's the argument mm -hmm. it'll make in the first instance. And then I think the second argument is, I mentioned that word willfully. So willfully in the criminal law has a technical meaning, which means something close to you knew you were violating the law. Normally, ignorance of the laws, they say, is not a defense. But if a statute has the element of willfully in it, it does require proof of something like you knew you were violating the law, or at least you knew you were doing something wrong. 
And mm -hmm. his argument will be, listen, even if I'm wrong about the so-called Clinton Sox case and whether it says I can do this, I believed I was right. And so I didn't act mm -hmm. willfully. It's subjectively, I believed I was acting lawfully. So mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the argument, the focus of the defense. It's going to be a legal argument combined with saying, even if I'm wrong about the law, I didn't have a criminal intent. That will probably be the mm -hmm. defense to the Espionage Act charges. The obstruction charges is harder. And this is where people <laughs> often get tripped up, right? We've seen over the course of time, any number of cases. We can think back to the Martha Stewart and investigation for insider trading and ultimately didn't get charged with insider trading, but with obstruction. And you know, as they say, the cover-up can be worse than the crime. And so the more difficult charge for the former president could be defending against the obstruction, the providing of false information to the grand jury. If you say, I gave everything back, and then they do a search warrant and find out you didn't give everything back, the question is going to be, did the president know that? Did he have people for that? Did the people make a mistake? Or as alleged, was there an effort to conceal things? So I think those are going to be the issues at the centerpiece of the defense. And Matt, what do you say of the argument that you can't listen to anything the DOJ says or does because Jack Smith is has already demonstrated partiality to Biden. This is part of Biden's kind of sick dogs, like they're they're sicking their dogs on him. What legal sense do we make of that? Yeah, so I, I guess what they're essentially saying is some degree of some sort of selective prosecution that you know Hillary didn't get prosecuted for her emails and Biden didn't get prosecuted for having his documents in his garage or wherever it was, or I guess Mike Pence didn't get prosecuted for having documents. So th I think there's sort of a couple points to be observed there. Sort of one, we should want impartiality in the enforcement of the law. We should want similar cases to be treated similarly and dissimilar mm -hmm. cases to be treated dissimilarly. And so it's not wrong for people to raise that question or raise concerns. We should hold particularly as Christians, where scripture teaches over and over about impartiality and judgment, we should want that from our officials. So it's a legitimate concern. But the point is that similar cases should be treated similarly and dissimilar mm -hmm. cases should be treated dissimilarly. And the description of, while I'm not here to defend what Hillary Clinton did or what Joe Biden did or what Mike Pence did, having documents describing war plans and discussing them at your country club with people you know shouldn't have them is very different than sloppily or even intentionally taking documents with you and having them in your garage. Those are different things and they are materially different things. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I condone the other cases or even, mm -hmm. you know, I'm offering an opinion on whether those should have been prosecuted or not prosecuted. But I do think we have to be realistic that not every violation of the handling of classified materials is the same. We should, mm -hmm. though, raise questions about whether or not those cases were handled properly. And I don't fault anyone for raising those questions. We should ask that as citizens. Mm -hmm. Are we getting impartial justice in America? Yeah, it's funny when you mentioned the Clinton Sox case. The first time I heard someone mention that, I actually wasn't familiar with that one in particular, I was familiar with the Sandy Berger case, right? Which was mm -hmm. also involving socks. Form, <laughs> well, yeah, former Clinton aide goes and stuffs classified materials into his socks and pants, right? To smuggle out of a, I guess maybe out of a skiff or wherever right. he was viewing those documents. And in that case, I mean, Berger was convicted and and I believe served time. It strikes me as such an interesting contrast. Like it's such a moment of tribalism, right? 
because so much of Trump's message in 2016 was, look what she did with the email server. This is disgusting. Mm -hmm. She doesn't love this country. Mm -hmm. And the whole mob is shouting, lock her up. And now you have charges that in many ways, as you point out, are more severe. And part of Trump's defense is basically saying, oh, this wasn't a big deal. And we actually have a clip here I wanted to play. This is Senator Marco Rubio, who's been making rounds, offering a similar defense of, of Trump. Let's, let's hear this. This prosecution was a choice. There is something called prosecutorial discretion. The federal government uses it all the time. It's what they use not to deport people. It's what they use to release a bunch of rioters and, and thugs that burned down parts of the city here in Washington, D.C. And they had a choice to make, and they should have looked at this and said, there is no victim here. There's no harm that's been caused. Even if everything they allege is true, which we don't know if it is, but if, even if everything they allege is true, there's no harm to the country. But there is certain harm now from this. This will deeply divide an already well, polarized and volatile country, doing tremendous damage to America at a time when we should be focused on the threat from China and the threat we face to our greatness. We are subjected to this ridiculousness because it was a choice, a political choice by a prosecutor. That's why they chose to do this. So Rubio is, is making this argument around, you know, prosecutorial discretion, that Jack Smith made a decision to bring these charges. He didn't have to make this decision. And he's referencing all these other charges that weren't brought. Again, this is related to the Clinton thing as well. What do you make of this argument around discretion, this idea that there wasn't harm done, no blood, no foul, there weren't spies floating around Mar-a-Lago that we know of. What do you make of this idea that as a matter of discretion, this was more divisive to the country and more problematic? So I think I would start with, again, I think it's perfectly legitimate to raise questions about whether or not there's even-handed justice. I do not think it's fair to affirmatively accuse people of acting with bias or with political motives without evidence of that. And I think it's bearing false witness to use the biblical term, to say that Jack Smith acted with that intent without evidence that he did so. It's fair to ask the question. It's not fair to make an accusation without evidence. So I'd start with that as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I'd say, secondly, prosecutorial discretion is a real thing. It is recognized by the Supreme Court as essentially unreviewable, not entirely unreviewable, but very close. The idea is that no prosecutor, no police force has resources to prosecute every case. And moreover, not every case that might be a technical violation of the law warrants the force of the criminal law. And so prosecutors are supposed to exercise discretion. We want them to exercise discretion. We want them to recognize that not every case should be pursued. I think to say that this is a victimless crime, if it's true, is a bit irresponsible. If it's true that war plans were being shared with people in a country club with who knows who present, to say that that's victimless, I think, is is a bit much. Anybody who's worked in the government and had a top secret clearance, and I did, recognizes the severity and seriousness with which those rules are enforced, the accountability to those who have those permissions, the documents described in the indictment, if those were, in fact, treated so carelessly, I think would, find most, would cause most people who have a security clearance to be shocked. And so I don't to say it's victimless, I don't know how we know that mm-hmm. yet. The whole reason you can only look at those documents in certain places is because of surveillance capabilities that other nations have. And so I don't know mm-hmm. that anyone's in a position to say, or at least anyone, any civilian is in a position to <laughs> say that it's victimless. So again, it's, there's a difference between raising fair questions 
in making right. loose and irresponsible accusations. I thought on that note, one of the funnier comments I heard was Jim Garrity at National Review said, you know, our our best hope that no one found these classified documents is that the whole place was such a mess. <laughs> no one could find anything. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, let's pivot out a little bit to kind of look at this more broadly. You know, talking about the response to the indictment, we've heard this clip from Marco Rubio the day of the that the indictment was announced, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy came out, similarly saying, you know, with a vigorous defense of Trump, this is overreach, this is overprosecution. They're always looking for a way to bring him down. Things were a little more muted Friday after the actual indictment was released, but nonetheless, the support seems to be there, even from some of his rivals in the primary campaign. Then Yesterday, a morning consult poll that was conducted after this news broke showed that Trump got a 4% bump among primary voters. He was up from 55% to 59%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is at his lowest yet at 19%. Behind him is Mike Pence at 8%. And everybody else is 2% or not statistically significant, as they say. So, you know, I remain eight years in kind of baffled by this and by the support for Donald Trump, especially when you kind of break down the history. And I'll try not to monologue too long here, but he never won a majority of votes in the primaries in 2016. He won the electoral college, but didn't win the popular vote when he beat Hillary Clinton in 2016. His presidency was unpopular enough that he lost the house in 2018, lost everything in 2020. And in 2022, with an unpopular president and an unpopular Democratic majority, this red wave is supposed to come in. It didn't happen largely because the hardcore Trump supporters and election deniers that were running, they almost all lost. He's lost a civil case involving sexual assault and slander. There's this indictment in New York that most of the legal experts I've heard from seem to think that's a much weaker case. But nonetheless, he's under indictment in New York. He's under indictment in Florida. There's suspicion he's going to be under indictment in Georgia before long. And I just like find myself scratching my head going, how are we still here? Like, how is this getting stronger as we go along? And so I'd love to hear, Nicole, maybe from you first on this. Like, how do you understand the strength of that support? Yeah, I appreciate the way you laid that out because I've been thinking a lot about what does this mean about American society? What does this mean about American culture? But also, what does this mean about American evangelicalism when one report said as many as 60% of white evangelicals are still voting for Trump? And I think it builds on what some might say are these quote unquote American core values. So this platform builds on the core value of the underdog, the way that when someone is persecuted or or when someone is quote unquote oppressed, that person has a least likely chance of winning. But the American dream says the least likely of us can rise up and become somebody. So the more apparent or perceived persecution Trump receives, there's a, a stronger swell of, but we can rise and we can overcome and we can do this. And I think there's also kind of, um, you know, a building on our previous themes of fear. There's Trump has a way of galvanizing people according to what they fear. And even Christians, even, you know, very educated people still have fears of the other, of what will happen if they lose their place or lose their power or lose their privilege. And Trump has a way of projecting an image. If you follow me, I will protect you from them. Mm. 
And then I think the last part of it is just the sense of power. People like people in power. People like people who make statements about power, whether they can be validated or not. So I think who he is and the platform that he has taps into some of the things that we are going to have to wrestle with as time continues. As Christians, what do we do with earthly power? As Christians, what do we do with fear of the other? And as Christians, what do we do with the victimization or the sense of victimization? How do we revive a sense of Christian allegiance that allows us to be critical about things and not just go with the flow of the crowd? Yeah, I mean, picking up on what Nicole just said, I've been reading a a very interesting book recently called The Godless Crusade by Thomas Kremer, who is a believer, teaches at Oxford. And he did a survey to try to understand this rise of populism in the West. So he interviewed 140 government officials in Germany and France and the United States to understand this rise of right-wing populism. And in his thesis, and it's been interesting, I've been thinking about it a lot recently in light of the issues you've raised, Mike, is that there's a realignment in society that where there used to be a left-right divide around ideology, it's now a left-right divide over identity, sort of to Nicole's point about the other. And it's that the rise of populism across the West has been facilitated by people who are sort of defining the other. The other Mm -hmm. is the non-Christians in significant part. Mm -hmm. And Christians is used, Kremer argues, more as an identity marker than as a religious or theological marker. And I think that that's why I think Kremer's onto something. I say this as a non-expert, but he seems to be onto something (laughs) that he's put his finger on something that no matter what behavior someone engages in, if they are representing us against the other, if they're fighting for us against the other, they maintain support because the defining feature is no longer a belief in Christian character, but in Christian as an identity marker. It's a very interesting thesis. Mm. I recommend the book. It just came out, Mm. The Godless Crusade. Mm. And it's caused me to think a lot more. And I feel like he's one of the more insightful people on this topic. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it kind of gets at it kind of gets at this other element of it for me that I find so interesting about the Trump phenomenon. And I think it's the kind of thing that you see mostly when he's in front of a crowd. I heard someone point this out. I think it was Matt Continenti was pointing this out the other day on the commentary podcast. He said the genius of when Bill Clinton was facing impeachment and when he was facing, you know, charges of lying under oath and all of this, his quote unquote three-dimensional chess was that he knew the law inside and out. And he was playing with the language and that famous quote of his where, you know, it depends on what the definition of is, is right. He was threading this needle that, you know, again, that's sort of his slippery genius was his way of navigating all of that. Trump has a different kind of genius. He knows nothing about (laughs) policies and these sort of things and, and sort of, sort of makes no apology for it. But he has this animal instinct that, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but he has this animal instinct of, he's got the antenna, right? He knows what's in the room. He knows what's happening. Because there was this moment on Tuesday night during the speech that he gave a speech after he'd been at the arraignment. And there was this moment that kind of perfectly encapsulated, he's, he's in the middle of the speech and he, he makes some comment. And then someone in the crowd yells out, happy birthday to him. His birthday was the day after the arraignment. Uh, let's play that clip. Thank you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Great birthday. Nice birthday, isn't it? 
birthday. Wonderful birthday. They were saying happy birthday. I was with, I was with Eric and Laura, the kids. Happy birthday, Grandpa. Happy. And I said, oh, great. I just got charged with, they want 400 years, approximately. If you add them all up, a fake, a fake 400 years. Oh, thank you, darling. That's so nice. It's a wonderful birthday. Oh, we're going to make it into the greatest birthday of all. We'll make it into the greatest day of all. And so to me, that that clip just encapsulates the Trump thing so perfectly. Because what you hear him doing is he's he's got the sense, this crowd adores him, he's got the sense of what it is, and then he feeds it and feeds it and feeds it, and then essentially gives his tag at the end, you know, the, the word great, America, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of American greatness tag with all of this. And, you know, there was a similar moment, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, there was a similar moment in the Caitlin Collins town hall when she's pressing him he's saying i'll I'll end the russia ukraine war in 24 hours and she's pressing him for an answer as to how how's he going to do that and his answer was i want people to stop dying right mm-hmm. and and what's interesting to me is it's like it's almost <laughs> not to get too nerdy with it but it's almost augustinian right like it's all about desire it's all about mm-hmm. like speaking to like what do you want this dream of a great america the vision of a war ending he has this way of feeding that I was, talking about it to somebody the other day and I was like it's like they're all serving saltines and this guy's flaming hot cheetos like everybody wants the flaming <laughs> hot cheetos yeah. I mean listen he reads the room right he reads the yeah. national yeah. room in a way he understands what's remarkable to me about it is that a billionaire from New York understands <laughs> a significant swath of the country that he did not mm. live in but he mm. understood it seems and has continued to understand better than anyone else out there whether he stumbled into it or whether he's a genius you know i guess his you know someone will figure that out someday but he certainly has figured it out and mm. recognizes that with the substantial displacement and reorganization and changes in our culture that there are people very troubled by some of the trends, understandably. And mm-hmm. he's able to tap into that and be their fighter. Again, back to the Kremer proposition of sort of an us against another and no longer an ideological us versus another. Well, last question for you. Sure. You know, here we are. It's it's June 2023. When will this see trial? Is this going to happen before the election, after the election? What yeah. What do you imagine? So in theory, the federal criminal law provides for a speedy trial within 70 days. That almost never happens. There's various exceptions to the 70-day requirement, particularly as the case is more complex. So typically, in any complex case, you would be probably looking at a trial nine months to a year later. What's going to slow things up here is that there will be undoubtedly a substantial amount of classified information that is in the evidence that has to be disclosed, which means you need defense lawyers who either have security clearances or they have to get security clearances. And then there's questions about how that evidence gets used or introduced in court in a way that doesn't impair national security. So there's a Mm. statute called CIPA, C-I-P-A is the acronym that governs that process. It can be a very cumbersome process. And so it is very possible that even a judge with the best of intentions of moving a case along speedily couldn't get this to trial before the election. It's possible, but Mm -hmm. I think probably not the most likely scenario. 
it's a trial is probably a year and a half or more away. Well, Matt Martin, thank you for joining us here on The thank Bulletin. You. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt's book comes out this November from Crossway. The title is Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Thanks again, Matt. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier this week in New Orleans, more than 12,000 Southern Baptists gathered for their annual meeting. That's the gathering where the denomination's business gets discussed. Annual reports are presented, larger institutions talk about what they've been doing, and they elect their officers. This one comes on the heels of several years' worth of controversy inside the Southern Baptist Convention. Since 2018, they've been reckoning with a history of sexual abuse, failures to report it, and efforts to cover up. A subsequent independent investigation led to the formation of a task force, and the task force has been at work trying to address those issues, implement recommendations, and continue to advocate for abuse survivors. But that process has led to a number of high-profile leaders from SBC entities losing their jobs, resigning. Probably most notably, Paige Patterson was ousted from Southwestern Seminary. Patterson was considered the architect of the conservative resurgence at the SBC. He was enshrined, literally enshrined in stained glass in the chapel at Southwestern. So many Patterson allies and many sort of stalwart Southern Baptist leaders have been arguing that this reaction has gone too far. One of the chief among them was Mike Stone, a pastor who ran for SBC president several years ago. He ran again this year. He was promising to roll back some of those reforms, to shut out certain voices, including Rachel Den Hollander. He named her by name, a victim advocate that he wanted to shut out of the, the process and the conversations and wanted to move things in a new direction. He was running against Bart Barber, the incumbent SBC president, who was running for his second term, and Barber's largely been seen as an advocate for reform. Barber resoundingly won that election 68% to 31%. Meanwhile, the other high-profile issue that came up at the convention was the disfellowship of Saddleback Community Church, along with two others, for allowing women to serve in the role of pastors. That disfellowship actually happened back in February. It was, it was something that the SBC's executive committee did. And so at the convention, Saddleback's founding pastor, Rick Warren, well-known bestseller, sometimes referred to as America's pastor, Rick Warren was appealing that decision at the convention, but it was upheld by those messengers by a vote of almost 88%. All right, Nicole, this is an interesting conversation for you and I to jump into, I think, because mm -hmm. you would have... 
for starters, you're a pastor. Um, mm-hmm. You're a woman, in case our listeners really? didn't realize that. This is audio. Um, That's great. You know, and I come out of the SBC. I helped plant an SBC mm-hmm. church. I worked in one for 15 years. I, I still attend that church. And so I don't set that up to try to set up a debate or anything like that, but just mm-hmm. to say we're coming to this conversation as two people who share a lot and values, particularly values, I would say, around sort of big tent evangelicalism. And as two people who want to see the SBC thriving and have observed these things closely because many of these issues hit close to home for us. Yeah. What do you make of these outcomes this week in New Orleans? So. I've been having several conversations with people. Some of them are very disappointed. I mean, this decision brought tears to the eyes of many men and women who were hoping for a better outcome, what they believed would have been a better outcome of the process. And for them, this is less an issue of a vote for women as pastors. It is more an issue of how women can show up in faithful service to God. So one of the things that we've learned over time is when we stand on our convictions about who should be in and out, we must do that in love because the message of who is in and who's out can often come with who is loved and who's not, who has value and who doesn't, who has meaning and worth and who doesn't. And the, the pain of, of some people who were affiliated with SBC and heard this decision, their pain comes in knowing that there wasn't any affirmation of the purpose and calling of women. Some felt like this is a return to the days of the you know 1950s. I think Rick Warren even referenced that in his appeal. He said, we're looking for the time to return of the 50s where the Southern Baptist Convention was all male, all white, where women knew their place at home, where it was a club of sorts. And whenever we get to the place of this level of thinking about what utopia looks like in community, we have to be considerate on what that decision does to those who were quote unquote out. So the next steps I think for the SBC will have to be, if not the pastorate, then what? How do you affirm your teenage daughters and and your wives who are yearning to be used by God? Where do they serve? What place do they serve? How do you affirm them? Because if you don't do that, then the message will be inadvertently sent. Not only are you not qualified to pastor, but you don't belong. You don't have a strong place of leadership or Mm -hmm. service in the house of God. Let me ask this as well, because a number of the women who've been speaking up about these questions and speaking about what's going on inside the SBC have done Mm -hmm. so from the inside and have been women who would be complementarians, meaning Mm -hmm. they would uphold the idea that Mm -hmm. ordination is is for men only. What would a woman who's convictionally on board with mm-hmm. Southern Baptist convictions about male ordination, who's not arguing for the ordination of women, yeah. but is nonetheless articulating, Bothered. Yes. I'm concerned. I don't, mm-hmm. I, this, this feels bad to me. Mm-hmm. What are they looking for? What, what would they like to see from Southern Baptists moving forward? There is a sense, first of all, that there are many roles that women can play and have played biblically. So there are some women who will say, again, if not this, then what? There must be a clear articulation of the roles, but also of the value of women in faith and Christendom. No one can argue with the statistics that say that most churches even evangelical churches are made up of women. So how do you serve that population? How do you disciple that population? How do you raise them? 
Uh, for women who are complementarians but are still grieved by this decision, there is a sense of this growing kind of ripping apart of the Christian community. So uh, obviously two different cases, but what's happening with United Methodists, obviously very different, but what's also happening in other denominations and factions, we see this tearing apart, this kind of sense of we only want to be in homogeneous circles. And when you think about the early church, they were willing to rise above the non-essentials because they felt an urgency of the time. The gospel was so important that they just, they wanted to be together and advance the kingdom of God. And I do wonder, you know, the SBC decision to decide to kind of oust those congregations, and interestingly enough, that there were two congregations willing to fight against that, they desperately wanted to be part of this convention. They want to be part of this missional act. They want to be part of this community. So I thought it was interesting that they were willing to appeal. But when you think about the larger picture, we have to be so mindful of the fact that the, the more homogeneous we become, the more intentional we have to be about reaching across the aisle. And that might be more difficult for Christians the more divided we become. It has struck me as particularly interesting that you're not hearing a lot of talk about distinguishing primary and secondary issues as a matter mm -hmm. of orthodoxy. You know, I think it's important to recognize the fact that communities of faith, whether it's the Catholic Church or, you know, you've got traditions up and down the line that discern these things very differently around the mm -hmm. roles of men and the roles of women. And it's been interesting to me over the last several years, I feel like there's a tone shift yeah. where maybe 10 years ago when these conversations were taking place, most of the strongly convicted complementarians that I knew saw that as an important conviction for all kinds of theological and pastoral reasons, but as a secondary conviction, not as a matter of orthodoxy. And what I hear now in the way this stuff comes up, the language is much more combative. It's almost as though we'll pay lip service to it being a secondary issue, but we're going to frame it in such a way that if you disagree here, we're going to describe it as a slippery slope that makes it That's a primary it. issue in principle. Yeah. That's it. And you know, the slippery slope part, I think I've been around it for so long that it, <laughs> it's hard to kind of justify how often we attach clearly non-orthodox issues to the slippery slope. I even once heard someone say, the slippery slope of letting women preach is going to lead us to polygamy. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, but why is this happening? Because we have innate fear of what might happen when we let go. And I've always, mm -hmm. you know, in these conversations, I so respect even Mike that we're able to have this conversation because mm -hmm. I'm concerned that we're not making enough room for conversation, for dialogue with people who say yes to Jesus, but might have some difference in other areas. But what do we do with those who are being saved and following Jesus as a result of a woman's leadership? What do we do with them? So, mm -hmm. you know, this is very complex, but it is heartbreaking because as you've said, we all want to see the SBC thrive. And mm -hmm. at first it was issues of race and how do they manage predominantly black congregations? I'm very connected to some of the black pastors who have said, we can't do this anymore. So now you have another split and how do you manage this? What will it look like? Are we looking mm -hmm. at the formation of another denomination? Are we looking at another series of appeals? I mean, we're going to have to navigate. What does it mean 
to be a convicted Christian in these times? And how do we get back to this urgency of the last days where we just want Christ to be glorified in a way Mm -hmm. that we're unified on the core issues, but we're not going to worry about things that may not be as essential? Yeah, and I think you you see the contrast of, you know, this is something I heard Tim Keller speak about many times, like the difference between building a beautiful city and policing its borders, right? Yes. And so, so much of what you see around the conversation around complementarianism and egalitarianism has been about border policing. I mean, this week yes. has been about border policing. And again, denominations have a right to do that. Yes. But it strikes me as well if you're not articulating that positive vision, I mean, the SBC's two big annual offerings are Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, two women who use their gifts for ministry and could set that kind of positive vision, that kind of positive example. But even the idea of articulating a positive vision for ministry is is something that's contested. I think the other Mm -hmm. thing that comes to mind in the midst of this is to bring it back to the sexual abuse scandal. That's right. There's a war going on over how do we deal with this where very clearly a faction just wants to roll back the clock. I mean, when, mm. when you hear the language of it, it's hard not to hear that language as, yeah, we just want to roll back the clock on these things. And, you know, there was a tweet the other day where somebody said, I want you to imagine a, a stage in a church where there's a woman, a pulpit, and a sexual predator. And it feels like we're in this moment where there are people who are more concerned about protecting mm. the pulpit from the woman than they yeah. are protecting her or the pulpit from the predator, right? That's right. And to me, you know, there's that old saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? That's this right. whole idea mm-hmm. that like the culture of a community is the most important thing about its effectiveness and everything else. Like that's true for our churches. That's true for yes, our denominations. And if you have this air where there's this strong culture of border policing, let's make sure we keep women out of the pulpit, and this attitude that we're being too hard on sexual predators or we're going too far in our Mm -hmm. steps to try and, and bar them. Those two things communicate very loudly at the same time. And I think there's just a lack of self-awareness around it. That is so, so true. And this is part of the pain that I heard even in conversations with others. They're saying, so you're okay with this gentleman standing in a position of leadership, knowingly abusing boys or women and taking advantage of those most vulnerable, but you are not okay with me being what I believe is faithful to a calling that God has given me or gifts that God has given me. So again, going back to the SBC, this is going to be a pivotal year to make decisions. Mm. If we're going to come down hard on women's ordination and on pastoring, then you're going to have to have a bountiful and gracious allowance for how women can and should use their gifts. If you are going to make decisions about what sexual abuse looks like, you're going to have to amplify what care for the victim looks like. And I I don't think we've done that well. And I think the SBC Mm -hmm. is going to have to make those decisions if they hope to retain not just the congregations who might be egalitarian, but if they want to maintain even the complementarian congregations, they have to articulate the ways that they value and understand the roles of women in the church. Uh, That's well put. All right, we will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, 
we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Right. I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right, Nicole, so next Monday, June 19th, is Juneteenth, a holiday that is celebrated across the country. Here at CT, we've, we've got some coverage of this coming both online and on actually several podcasts this week. Russell Moore's podcast is an extended conversation about this with Justin Gibney. We'll link all that in the show notes for listeners who want to follow up on this. But Nicole, I didn't know this holiday. I didn't know it existed until yeah. just a few years ago. So yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one. For our listeners, what is Juneteenth? Awesome. So Juneteenth is a recognition of the day when the last word of the Emancipation Proclamation reached the farthest ends of Galveston, Texas. So Abraham Lincoln releases the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, but because of the communication process, because of the distance that it took to spread the word, and because of the politics around the release of slaves— It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, that there was an enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation in the farthest parts of Texas. So this is a significant time for American people. We are uh, people who want to celebrate the times that we did the right thing. And June Mm -hmm. 19th is a celebration for all of us of all races and ethnicities to recognize we did things right. History is complicated. We don't always do the right things. In fact, we sometimes elevate people who do the wrong things. But on June 19th, 1865, we did it right. And that is definitely something to celebrate. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, someone I was talking to about this yesterday. The line she used as we were just in conversation, she said, people didn't know they were free. Like they were already free, but they didn't know they were free. And she pointed out, I mean, it's interesting in the light of the other two conversations that we're having here today about concerns about justice and disunity in the church, concerns about Mm -hmm. rampant populism and the divisive nature of our politics, that there is a promise of justice that may be slow moving, but it nonetheless is a promise of justice. That's a very good point, especially in connection with the other conversations, because when you're in it, you can kind of feel like, is this ever going to end? Is this, are we ever going Mm -hmm. to get through this? But our Christian hope is the reality that Christ can redeem these moments on earth. Mm -hmm. And while we have this kind of eschatological, it will be glorious in our eternal life day, we also have history that proves it can be a glorious turnaround moment if we can really work together to make that happen. So traditionally, like how long has this holiday been celebrated? How is it celebrated? When did it become a holiday, I guess is 
one question I was curious about. That's a great question. So Juneteenth has been a celebrated holiday for many years, but it became a federal holiday in 2021. This was an important time. I remember seeing an interview from a woman who was 99 years old, a black woman in 2021. She was interviewed and she said, all my life, this has been a holiday in our community. And for the first time in my life, this is a holiday for my country. And it just felt like an important moment to realize that while Black communities have celebrated this date of freedom for generations, for the first time in history, it became a national celebration. And when I talk to people about Juneteenth, I'm excited to say this is our holiday. This is an American triumph. This is a joint celebration. This is not just a time for a certain group of people to be excited. And there are so many things you can do on Juneteenth. By the way, if you go to the Food Network, there are tons of Juneteenth recipes. It's really amazing. One of my favorites is uh, strawberry soda. So the history says in 1865, they pulled out all of the quote unquote, you know, uh, celebrated kind of set apart foods and brought them out for a huge cookout. So they had strawberry soda, red velvet cake. They had all Mm. of these foods. But, you know, when you think about the history of food and the role that food played for both the enslaved and free black communities, food was a central part of community. So this is a great time to think about how do we celebrate together? How do we become community together? And again, the redemptive nature of Juneteenth is not just how do they, how do Black people celebrate this, but how do we together become Mm. community and share a meal together and remember what great thing happened on this date? I'm a big Red Velvet fan. Uh, Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) That's great. One of the very best. All right. Well, we'll link to all those resources here in our show notes. Thank you, Mike. It's really great that we get to talk about some areas that, you know, people may not be as familiar with. And I am not as familiar with an area that you know, and that is the person of Cormac McCarthy. So tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit more about who he was and why he mattered. So Cormac McCarthy passed away this week. He was 89 years old. He's an American novelist, one of the more significant novelists, certainly of the last hundred years, a Pulitzer Prize winner and all sorts of notable awards for him. It's fascinating to me. I mean, he published his last novels came out in, I think, December and January of this year. So at 89, he's still publishing. And throughout his career, you know, you look at his, his writing style, it evolves in many ways. You know, there's question as to whether it was simply an evolution of his writing or whether it was just this artist with this incredible virtuosity wanted to sort of go you know, write like Faulkner at times and then write like mm-hmm. Hemingway at times, you know, these very lean, crisp kind of projects. But yeah, I mean, he's a very significant figure, I think, in American literature and and in part because of the fact that he was virtuoso, but also in part because the weightiness of the stuff he covered. Yeah. His books are about judgment. His books are about death. His books are about meaning. So for this guy to pass, it's a it's a great moment to kind of stop and just appreciate his work. The book I kept thinking about all week long was his novel from 2006. It was actually the one that won the Pulitzer called The Road. And this is this post-apocalypse novel. Something has happened. The sun is essentially blotted out. The world's gone to just absolute chaos. And the book is the story of a father and a son on the road, on this journey, trying to find a safe place, a safe, mm-hmm. a safe harbor. And there's all kinds of terrors on the road. There's these sort of 
wild prophetic men along the road. There's cannibals. Mm. They're pursued by people. And it's really terrifying. And several years ago, I was talking about it with a friend of mine, Alan Noble, who is a friend of CT's, has published with us before. And Noble has done a lot of work on McCarthy as a scholar. And he pointed out, he says, you know, really the road is the story of Abraham and Isaac, but it's in reverse. And where Abraham had to be willing to kill his son as an act of faith, in the road, in this hellscape, the father's act of faith was to keep his son alive. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of all this darkness, it's just this incredibly beautiful book. These conversations between the father and son feel so real. And the sort of the innocence of the, the kid and the, and the theme that they keep talking about back and forth is what separates them from the darkness around them. And the mm. kid keeps saying, but we carry the fire, don't we, Dad? We carry the fire. And I just, you know, Cormac McCarthy certainly, certainly carry the fire. Yeah. Does it feel like a certain death of an era of, of a type or style of writing? And who else do you see that might have that same kind of impact maybe for the future? You know, it's hard to prognosticate that stuff, I think. I mean, you, you keep hearing people say, oh, the death of the novel is coming. The death of the novel mm-hmm. is coming. I'm not sure that that's true. But he certainly was, you know, at 89, the last of his generation who's going to contribute mm-hmm. in that way. For listeners, if you if you want to get familiar with McCarthy, number one, you may be already, if you've seen the movie No Country for Old Men, that's by mm-hmm. far the best one of his novels that's been turned into a film. But I always tell people, like, The Road is a great place to go if you can handle the darkness. Right after it came out, I gave it to a friend who called me at midnight a few days later, sobbing, uh, oh, no. saying, tell me it's worth finishing reading the book, because it was so... Yeah. You know, because you get the book, you you start reading the book, and you you end up staying all night reading it. McCarthy scholars would say his most important book is this book called Blood Meridian, which is about mm. you know it's it's a very murderous, dark, dark, dark book about judgment. But I would say that the easiest point of entry is a book called All the Pretty Horses, which is also a book about death, but it's about the dying of the old West and mm-hmm. this sort of man born out of time who was born to be a cowboy after the barbed wire has been introduced, after the pickup truck, and he goes south to Mexico to try to find his place in the world. And it's just, I mean, they're just extraordinarily beautifully written books. So rest in peace, Cormac McCarthy. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.